Episode 52 with Brian Dunn. Brian is the drummer for Hall & Notes. He's been touring the world with them for uh, several years now. Also the drummer on uh, Live from Daryl's House. Uh, great show if you haven't had a chance to check that out. Uh, also, my uh, co-host for this particular podcast, once again, Rob Asselstein. And enjoyed having Rob on the podcast. Don't forget, our sponsors for this podcast uh, would be, first of all, my grandfather's fiddle.com. Make sure you go check out that website. I like driving people right to the website. Uh, they make custom t-shirts and specialize. And if you have, uh, let's say, an old fiddle from your grandfather or um, old piano that's sitting around the house that belonged to uh, someone special, you can take a picture of that and have that instilled on a great t-shirt. Just go to the website, my grandfather's fiddle.com. Also, Music City Canada, based out of London, Ontario. Uh, great store, uh, has everything in there you could ever want, being a musician, a producer, an engineer, uh, or a live music venue. Um, great music store, they ship all over the place, and they look after you very well, so make sure you check them out, musiccitycanada.com. Also, Morning Buzz Coffee, make sure you check them out online at morningbuzzcoffee.buzz. And two musicians based out of Hamilton and all in this particular uh, company, and they'll ship all over the place. So make sure you check out their awesome coffee uh, at their website. All right, we are going to roll Brian Dunn. I hope you enjoy. <laughs> All right, we're rolling here with Brian Dunn. Nice to have you here on the podcast. When Rob told me we were having one of the members of Brooks and Dunn on the podcast, I was really happy about that. <laughs> I have a Brooks and Dunn story, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, let her rip. It's no time like the present. <laughs> well, well, I used to play. I used to play with a jazz guitar player named Chuck Loeb, and at the time we were on the road, the bass player. Of the, in the band at that point, his name was Jerry Brooks. He was this amazing <laughs> bass player. So he started, he started introducing us as Brooks and Dunn. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty great. Yeah, yeah. that's pretty good. How could I slide that in? I got to do it right at the top of the show. <laughs> <laughs> so Brian, for those you don't know, uh, fabulous drummer, uh, is playing with Hall of Notes. Uh, and uh, we were just chatting just before the show started and saying with with a band like that, you got to be able to groove, and, and Brian's a groover on the drum kit, and sounds really great, and uh, real pleasure to have you on here. Uh, first of all, it must be pretty cool playing with Hall Notes and being able to do the show uh, live with uh, Daryl's House. Yeah, that's a great show. Um, you must be pretty happy with that whole situation. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of unheard of in, in terms of the whole package. You know, being a band like that and to be playing all those hit songs. And then when you're not on the road, oh, yeah, we have this music television show. <laughs> so it's crazy. It's completely. Where you completely get to play unique. and eat and. Yeah, yeah and, exactly. Yeah. And the world of rock and roll comes to you. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so it's, it's pretty. Um, yeah, we're the, the guys in the band. We're super, super lucky. Yeah, it, you know, it's it, like you said, all those hits too. It's just, it's just the night just keeps rolling along, and 
and they're not songs that you get tired of playing. I imagine they're got to be definitely not. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 for 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 those who don't know, for those guys, they don't get bored of it either. I've played with artists that like they get a little sick and tired of playing the the, the one or two hits that they have because that's what most artists have. These guys, they'll play. You know, if we sometimes we have to play a, a, a short show, so, which means then you definitely have to play the biggest songs. Yeah. They have no problem with it. They're proud of what of every tune and they, and they, and they, they have no, they they love doing it yeah. every night. So it's great. It's great. Nice to see. You bet. A quick que- I have a quick question. Um, uh, originally when Daryl started this, it was uh, just an online show, right? <clears throat> and he actually did shoot it on his property, right? Yeah. Um, uh, where do you guys shoot now? We shoot at a, at now he has a, he owns a music venue and restaurant and it's okay. called live from Daryl's house. Right. It used to be a, used to be a club called the town crier up, up, up in Pauling, New York, which is close to his residence. And, um, he, we did, we did, we did the show. The show was done at his house for seven years. And then the show's been around a long time now. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, I guess it was, four years ago that they purchased the club and he's basically, he sold the house when he sold his house. It was like, now what do we do? And, and, and he wound up buying the club. And I think he's in, I think he was envisioning, um, something quasi similar to, um, like a BB Kings thing. Like where I think long-term he's thinking of, I think he was probably thinking of more than just this one place. It is franchised, isn't it? There is more than one. I think, well, there's, there's always been talk about there being more than one, but I don't know that any other one is open yet. Uh-huh. But that's, I think that's ultimately the plan. And then he decided to make the inside of it. They furnished it and made it look like the inside of the house we used to play in. Yeah. So it, it, was, it was a perfect scenario. Cool. So how is yeah. the whole COVID situation sitting? We might as well get that talk over with. Um, how has that affected uh, your life the last few months? Yeah. Um, you know, well, zero gigs. Yeah. Um, but ironically, the Daryl is doing something at his club on a, in a, they're videoing it. I'm actually not doing it. It's only, it's only three members of the band. It's like a little acoustic thing that they're doing. Um, but, um, luckily for me, I have a studio in my basement and I've been doing remote drum tracks for 17 years now. Wow. that long. So, yeah. So I kind of jumped in that pretty early. Um, and, and luckily for me, I have, you know, I have stuff that I'm, I'm working on. So it's, it's, uh, it's it's been cool, but I mean, I miss playing. Yeah, I miss playing. Yeah, you miss playing with a group of people too. Um, it's yeah, it, you know, there's something that happens when you get a bunch of guys together or gals together and and sit in a room or go on stage and perform. And I've been doing a, a bunch of stuff here at my studio remotely too, and getting tracks in, and it's great putting it all together. And it's like, oh, it's great. You know, we got this guy from over here and this guy from the other side of the country, and we're all coming together and being able to perform, but it's never quite the same as everyone playing together. And you got to sit there yeah. and, 
as an engineer, I got to sit there and kind of, I got to move this guy back a little bit. I got to move this guy ahead a little bit, you know, just to make it feel like we're all in the same room. Um, but it all works, but it, it's not quite the same and you miss that kind of hang and, and all that, but, but it's neat that you you can do it. Right. And, and not everybody has the chops to be able to, um, to do that and actually get really good sounds and, um, and be able to have people trust that they're going to actually do the right part and, and do the right thing. So it takes, Mm -hmm. it's a different skill too, than, than playing live and even just going into the studio, being able to sit on your own and, and play the tracks. It takes a little bit of time uh, to get that down. So, so what, uh, what, uh, what DAW do you use uh, in your studio, Brian? What digital workstation? I have, uh, an H, uh, 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 Pro Tools HD um, uh, native. Yeah. Right. So it's, you know, Thunderbolt system. Yeah. With an H, with a, with a, uh, an Avid HD IO um, and some mic freeze and that's about it. I don't really use plugins. I leave that up to the experts. I try to just get some good raw drum sounds and um, yeah, and that's it. And what uh, what uh, brand of kit do you uh, endorse or do you use? I use um, I, I endorse DW Drums and Sabian Cymbals, Vic Firth Sticks, and Evans drum heads. Yeah, excellent. Yeah. And, and how many kits do you have? You must have a few. <laughs> <kind of around. laughs> I, no, no, the question is, how many snare drums do you have? <laughs> yeah, yeah, there you go. I mean, I, actually, I probably I have not that many compared to a lot of drummers I know. Um, I, I have a total of maybe seven snare drums, but there's, there's, there's literally 90% of the time there's, it it comes back to this one, one DW snare drum that I use, but then there, I have a couple of specialty drums. Like I have a tiny little 12 inch snare drum and, and then a big, a big eight inch deep snare drum. And, you know, just for a real, uh, you know, extreme <clears throat> deep sounds or extreme high sounds, you know, you can only crank a snare drum so tight. It's never going to sound like that little 12 inch drum, you know? Yeah. So, um, but yeah, as far as drums go, I, uh, I, I, I got rid of a lot of the stuff I had over the years. Um, it's the same old story. Like there's a lot of people that you, you have good stuff and then you, you, you sell it off and then you regret it. And I'm definitely that guy. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I just got rid of so much stuff and you know, Cool. Yeah, it's like and, having, uh, uh, it's like having direct TV or something. You have six hundred channels, but you really only watch about five or six of them. That's right. It's, yeah. like, it's like drum kits and snares, and kind of compare it to women's shoes. <laughs> it's all it all gets clumped in the same you know pile. So, and for yeah. the drummers out there, um, I wanted to ask you, uh, Brian, about um, your technique. Brian Brian uses a legit. Uh, hand uh, uh, positioning. I don't know what you call it, Brian. You're not a you're not an overhand guy. Traditional grip. Yeah. Traditional grip. Yeah. So the left sticks here. Yeah. Yeah. I ta- I was taught that way from my. I have two older brothers that play, um, well, that used to play, and my brother Kevin played traditional grip from when he was a, a little kid, and you know, I guess let's see, that would be, yeah, my, my, probably when I was in about third or fourth grade. So, I mean, it's a, that's a lot of years ago and it was, now it's kind of, it's kind of become unique. Um, 
But when I was growing up, you know, I wasn't the only kid that played traditional in like in school. But you know, it was always a little more unique than 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 match grip playing. But it's just the way I learned, and I never. Um, my brother was able to one day start playing match grip, and I never. It never clicked with me. I never got it together. I kind of regret it in ways because sometimes there there are, there are there are times where playing match grip is a uh, is advantageous you know because sometimes you're playing a, a, a beat where you're you're playing a rim click let's say on two and yeah. then you want to play the snare drum on four yeah. and when the producer asks for that then i do that and then i have to like hit a rim click now you would think <laughs> i would just pull my hand out and play the next note no. this way just to hit the snare drum once i'm gonna flip that thing over <laughs> because i have no muscle memory <laughs> yeah so it's it's, it's kind of a that. pain in the neck at times but it's i'm not i'm not willing to to, I'm not, I, don't, I feel like I have more work to do here. So what am I going to waste to trying to learn a new way to hold a stick? It's it served me well, so I'm going to just stick with it for now. Yeah. <laughs> and, in, and in anything, any anytime you and I have uh, been together, I've been really impressed by the traditional grip because you're able to play grace notes and ghost notes that a match grip just can't do. Like you, you you're able to bounce the stick off every sec every part of the of the drum head to give you those different notes yeah i mean it's it's <laughs> it, it it yeah i mean i know people i do know there there are people that play both can play both ways and and it seems as though the most common th thing that i'm told is for the guys that do both when they want to play a little lighter and a little more nuanced and specifically with lots of ghost notes and things like that. Um, they tend to, to turn to this, uh, um, to help. Um, but I mean, the reality is you can, it can be done both ways. I don't want to say one way is better than the other, but it, it's just the only way I can play. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's funny. I, I come from a, a fiddle background. It's my main instrument. It's a fiddle player. Mm -hmm. And traditionally when you grip, uh, your bow, you know, there's a traditional proper way of doing it, right? Um, and I never was that. I was always slightly up, a little higher on the bow than than most people, and I just didn't carry it the same. And uh, I always used to, everyone used to give me trouble. Oh, you got to do this. You got to hold it back here. And it's like, and I said, I'm getting the job done. <laughs> <laughs> and this is what feels right to me. And yeah. this is how I, you know, and I'm not. You know, that's the way I've learned. And I think it's adaptable for, for anything. I think as long as you make, make it work, who says what's right or what's wrong? Or sure, I don't think sure. there is any right or wrong. You can see guitar players and um, anything, you know, different ways of picking or even like a Jeff Healy thing where they play on your lap. And I mean, if you can make it work, make it work. And who cares how, yeah. how you get it done? So, yeah, yeah. Good, good. So how, when did you actually start playing how how young were you when you got the interest in drums man you know i don't really remember exactly how old i was i mean i was very young um because there's my like i said i had two brothers that played yeah. so it was always it was always in the house um so I, I mean i would say that i was i was definitely playing by the time i was uh how old are you in second grade Oh, oh, wait a minute. I've got one of those. Uh, six, uh, seven. Seven, seven. Yeah. Seven, yeah. So I, I probably started when I was six or seven. And it's I started with just, you know, I would go down on the bait. My brothers would play, be playing, so I would, you know, I'd go down and just get behind the kit 
just hit things, you know, but I, I learned how to read also very young. Um, uh, and I don't, I don't read all that much in my career now, but, uh, and, and actually to be honest with you, by the time I was in, by the time I was in sixth grade, I, I, my reading ability in sixth grade was as good as it was when I was in college. Wow. Like I, I couldn't, I wasn't, I couldn't play the drums the way I did that, yeah. uh, in college, but I couldn't interpret interpret musically a drum chart but in terms of reading repertoire on a snare drum like classical snare drum repertoire there was nothing that i was seeing in college that i didn't already know when i was literally in sixth grade because i had a i had my brother was a great teacher and there was another guy drumming named al miller on long island that um was a really great teacher and uh he would he didn't let me play the drum set he he i would go for lessons and he would I would be dying to get behind the kit and we would sit at the pad every week now. But luckily for me during this part of my education, I was going home and I was putting on, you know, Ronnie Montrose records and playing along with it. You know what I'm saying? So I had the best of both worlds. I had my brothers listening to bad company and listening to Zeppelin and rush and, you know, all these great rock bands and then they got into R&B music and, and playing Earth, Wind & Fire records when I was a little kid. But at the same time, I was getting this kind of legit thing going. You know what I mean? So it, it, yeah. it all kind of worked out nicely. Cool. So do you remember uh, your actual first Pang gig? <sighs> or close to it? Man, I... Uh, I don't, I mean, I can tell you this, when I was 14 is when I started doing like wedding gigs on the weekends. Yeah. My dad used to drop me off with a drum set <laughs> and, uh, and I was, and those were, those were like, and I was making, that was amazing money. Yeah. I mean, deal. even today, that's like, those are like some of the best gigs you can have. <laughs> and, and I was doing that when I was 14. Wow. They're not always the best gigs musically, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, I mean, as, as money, it was great for me because by the time I stayed home when I went to school. So man, when I was in high school, I was making a lot of money as kids go, you know what I'm saying? Playing the drums. It was pretty amazing. Yeah. At that, that, that age, that's, that's pretty fantastic. And, and yeah, you know, great to be able to go out at that age and, and learn. I mean, wedding bands, there's a lot to learn, uh, with that stuff. Oh, you gotta, yeah. You got to play a lot of different styles of music and, and, uh, uh, you know, yeah, they're, they're, they're big gigs. Um, you're a good Klezmer player. What's that? Klezmer. Klezmer. <laughs> I've never done a Klezmer gig. No. Oh my God. I have not. I have not. Life, yeah. life, life, life is not over yet. <laughs> <laughs> I tell, I'll tell you what I learned though. I learned pretty quickly that, you know, like when you're 16 years old and you can, and like, you know, when I, by the time I was 15, let's say I, I was already like deeply into, into, I had already been listening to Steve Gadd. And then my brothers were like bringing home these records with Vinnie Caliuta and Dave Weckl. And it was like, a, it was like, you know, for lack of a better term, it was like hyper versions of, of Steve Gadd of the yeah. day, you know? And these guys were, 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 you know, they were, they were playing, the type of music that 
it made sense to be playing over the bar line and displacing, right? But these are things that that you don't do on a on a gig where people are dancing, right? And when you're but when you're 15 years old and you you're that's what you're listening to, yeah. then it's it, you know you're gonna you're gonna if you're not mature you're gonna bring some of that stuff to where it doesn't need to be, and if you have the ability to do it you think that's okay, but it's not, even if not you do okay. it perfectly, right? And that's when you start getting those weird people looking back at you with confused looks on their faces. And and you, so I learned very young, like, Two, four. Yeah, like, what are you doing? You're like, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta keep strong time first yeah. before you do anything else. You gotta make it feel, you gotta make everybody feel comfortable around you first. And then, then we'll talk about what you want to get off. But you know, yeah. <laughs> It was great. I I play drums a little bit. Um, that's one of my instruments, and and I just found some old VHS tapes. Uh, I was telling Rob earlier, um, and I found some stuff from from high school. And I played drums with the show choir, right? And I thought, <laughs> you know, I would if you asked me now, I said, yeah, I thought it was pretty solid <laughs> until I watched this VHS <laughs> two nights ago. When I, was like, I I looked at everything I thought I was decent in that. And it was like, I was mortified. And I was like, as soon as I saw it, I was like, oh, this is going to be great stuff to put up on Facebook. And I started watching it. It's like, no, no, I'm not. I'm not, I'm not <laughs> but at the time, yeah. you know, it felt pretty good. But uh, yeah. obviously you were way ahead than I was. But um, yeah, it, it, it's great. I mean, it. I think for anybody, those years of, if, if you're playing when you're young and in high school, um, those are big moments in your life that kind of gear you towards what you do later on. I mean, it's, I think they're very, very important, uh, important years. Um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I look back at all that stuff very fondly of being able to, uh, play at a young age and be able to just kind of have an open mind and, and not really, you know, just, no. you're just taking things <laughs> in all the time, which is really important. Mm -hmm. So, as far as, you know, playing dance bands and doing all that when you were in high school, uh, wh where did you move on from there? Um, basically, after high school, I wound up, I wound, by the time I was in high school, I was, I was really into playing instrumental music. So I had gone through kind of two phases. I was, I started off playing to like kind of classic rock and roll and that morphed into R&B. But by the time... I basically followed my brother and who was seven years older than me, but he would, whatever he was listening to and whatever he got into, it would be handed off to me. So he would go through phases. And by the time I was in, yeah, by the time I was 15, he was in, he was in his Clifford Brown and Max Roach stage, like those records. So then I started getting into straight ahead jazz. And, but, and then I, I went, when I was in college, you know, that's what I was doing. I was playing straight ahead and a lot of like more fusiony gigs. Um, and the only gigs I was doing that actually had singers was the weekend work. You know what I'm saying? So what college were you at? Uh, I went to, I went to a community college for two years first, Nassau community college on Long Island and then Long Island university. Um, and I got a music ed degree. So I'm certified. To You're teach a teacher. You're a teacher. Instrumental band, K through 12. Cool. <laughs> cool. Yeah. 
I never, you know, 2021. I, it was, yeah, I mean, it was, it was, yeah, tell me about it. I, I, I uh, my parents, my, my dad just couldn't, he couldn't grasp like going to school for a performance degree. And if I, if I pushed the issue, I could, I he would have been okay. He would have let me do it. He didn't forbid me, but I knew that it was driving them crazy. Yeah. And because I'm lucky enough that I already lived, I've always lived basically an hour from Manhattan. So if you live there, I've been playing professionally for years before I even, before I even started college. So I figured I'll, I can stay home and I'll, I'll get the, the damn <laughs> education degree. It will, it will make my existence much easier. I so, got, when I got my degree in composition um, and I announced to my mother that immediately after my graduation ceremony, I was going to work full time in a recording studio. She cried. <laughs> and I, and I, I thought, are you crying of happiness? She, she expected that I would become a teacher. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I said, no, I'm a musician. I want, I want to play. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, I kind of, I acquiesced to, to, to them. Um, but the, the thing is, I still, it just made me work harder. Like my, t- to be honest, my, my real practicing years was actually in college. Like I, I, I was, I played a lot when I was younger, but God, do I wish I would have put the serious practice time I put in when I was, before I left high school. Yeah. Um, so I'm kind of a late bloomer in terms of the, 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 the crazy practice hours. And I did that when I went to school, you know, it just, you know what it, you know what I needed? I needed to see somebody who was kind of like me, but was a light year ahead of me yeah. at my age. And you, and you get that when you go to school. Now, I didn't get that at my school, but I got it because I lived an hour from Manhattan and I saw a drummer play when I was 16 years old that blew my head off. And I was like, ah, okay, I have so much work to do. And then I went bananas with practicing. So um, I was practicing ridiculous amounts of hours and going to school <laughs> and driving into Manhattan like every night to to, to just socially be around stuff. So I basically went four years without sleeping, <laughs> but it all, it was all worth it because my parents were happy at the, when it was all over. Um, I had a degree that, 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 it, you know, I ultimately never used, but it made in the big picture, it made my life easy shortly after that. So. Interesting when you're talking about, you know, wishing that you practice more when you're younger or, but probably at the time you were the best drummer in your school or best drummer in your age group in your area or, and it's the same thing uh, where I think a lot of young people go through. And I remember uh, when I used to have a lot of people come through my studio, they're bringing their 16 year old son or daughter who's a great singer and, and they've, you know, everyone thinks they're going to be a star. Um, but they come from a town with like 800 people. Right. So yes. for them, it, the best out of the 800. Yeah. yeah. So, and I always was brutally honest. But you're in Manhattan. Lots more people yeah. in Manhattan. But that happens all over the place, right? It's an interesting thing. It depends on where you are and who's around you. And once you get out of that, then you realize, oh, I'm not the best or I'm not as good as everyone thought I was. Um, yep. And it's important, I think, for younger people to be pushed 
um, and work hard and tell good things, but they also should be told that, okay, you're not maybe quite as good as you think you are. Let's work a little harder. That was my mother's job. Yeah. <laughs> was, I my, was, was I your mother? <laughs> you must have been in another life. Yeah, was, you're not as good as you think you are. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Yeah. I got a question. I got a question. How did you, uh, just, just before you and I met, um, uh, and I really didn't know anything about you when we did meet, um, you were, uh, you'd spent some time with the average white band. How did you get that gig? Um, there's a, there's a band, there's a band out in Long Island, uh, called the Funk Philharmonic. And it's, it's a band, it's like a Tower of Power, Earth, Wind and Fire cover band, but it's made up of quite a few members that had gone through T Tower of Power. Brent Carter, one of the lead singers, Tommy Bowes, one former lead singer, um, a bunch of the horn players, John Scarpula, David Mann. So these guys had gone, these like all New York guys that have been through that band. And so was, they made this cover band. And um, a cover I band saw, full of original guys. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but they, they, uh, they, they were playing at a club in Manhattan called La Barbat. And the lead singer, Brent Carter, um, he's friends big time with the average white band guys because average white band and tower, they do a lot of touring together yeah. and they became friends. And Brent, uh, found out that those guys, those guys happened to be in New York. Um, and they were going to be, they were auditioning drummers for the AWB gig, which I was not called for. And, um, Brent knew I was subbing, it's the kind of gig where I would sub once or twice a year. So every time you do it, it's like the first time you're doing it. And so I'm subbing and Brent invited those guys to come. And I, and unbeknownst to me, he never told me that he invited them. So I did the gig. And then after the gig, he introduced me to them. And the next day, the sax player called me up and he was like, Hey man, Alan, Alan dug what he saw. Um, we're actually here auditioning drummers. Um, he's like, I think they already want you to do this gig just based on last night, but he wants to at least, he wants to play with you um, just to see what it feels like. But they, they like what they saw and heard. So, um, so yeah, so I was basically at the right place at the right time. And, and I was, you know, you never know who's watching you. No, <laughs> I am true. literally that story. <laughs> yeah. I was phoning anything in. None of this would, yeah, I wouldn't be talking to you guys right now, literally. So, um, yeah, man, it worked out. It worked out to be a good thing. And the other thing was when I went to, to actually do the official audition, that week I was playing. I did a week at the Blue Note with Chuck Loeb. And that the night of my average white band audition, that night I was playing. Uh, Michael Brecker, the sax player, was playing with us. And that's like, that's one of my all time heroes. I don't care that he's a sax player. Like, that is, he's. The you don't want to hold that against him. No. And, and, and like, you know, I mean, as a drummer, yeah. I'm, as, I'm as into Michael Brecker as I am into any drummer. Like, he's that deep for me. And to know that I was going to be playing at the Blue Note with him that night for, you know, I, I don't know how to say it, but without it sounding negative somehow, but going to audition for these guys, it wasn't even on my mind. Oh, yeah. Right. I mean, I, I wanted to do a good job. Um, but all I could think about was like, Oh my God, I'm going to play with Michael Breckerton. I couldn't believe it. And when I went in there, 
I was so loose because I didn't like, it's not that I didn't care, but I didn't care so much that my life depended on it Yeah. because I was going to do this gig that I've been waiting my whole life to do that night. <laughs> so when I went in there, I was like, yeah, let's just play some music. And it, and, <laughs> and it wound up being to my advantage because I wasn't, I wasn't uptight about it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it, it worked out for the better. And those guys are amazing. That gig is, that gig was so good. And they, and they treated us. They con- I'm sure they continue to, they treat people amazingly well over there. And at, for a drummer playing the AWB stuff, oh, yeah. that stuff is killing. Yeah. I saw one of the tours, um, with average white band and tower of power. And it was just mind blowing. It just, could not believe it it was so good um yeah yeah it was it's one of the top you know top five music events i've ever been to um it's a little theater up um around buffalo keswick no oh. it was in the ranch. You're from pennsylvania right oh no, no no the guy from pennsylvania is the piano player you interviewed i watched yes. oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Watch. Scott. Scott. my mind yeah, yeah. scott scott yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well i saw uh Tower of Power at the NAM show in, in January. Um, and it was a big anniversary kind of concert deal thing. Man, they were still so good. Um, oh, they're so good. The new singer's killer. Yeah, really, really good. The mix was great and everything was really, really good. Um, yeah, man. I tell you what, if it wasn't, if it, you know, the average white band gig, you know, like, like things usually go, I mean, that's a big reason why I wound up with Hall & Oates. And, I literally was called for that Hall & Oates gig when I was with Rob. I know. In Canada. <laughs> really? Yes. And you have no idea how freaked out I was. I do. I come to you that day, I was, I was going to the bathroom in my pants, dude. <laughs> and you were, so, you were so unbelievably cool to me that day. Thank you so much for that, by the way. He was oh. super cool, super understanding. And I, cause I felt like I was letting people down and it was, it was really uncomfortable for me. And Rob was pretty amazing. So, so talk about that. How did that all come about, um, to get that gig? To get the gig with me? <laughs> to get the, the World yeah. Symphony Orchestra. You would talk about that. Well, I was, yeah, that <laughs> oh, I'm too. No, I'm, That's kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. Well, the, 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 the whole notes thing kind of came from, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of layered. The, the, there's a, there's, there's, there's a couple of members of the, of the Hall & Oates band now that are former members of AWB. So Porter, um, no, not Porter Carroll. No, well, no. technically, yes. Porter. Yeah. The Porter was with, a, it was the drummer with Atlantic star, Atlantic star, but, and lead singer, but unbeknownst yeah. to many people, Porter was actually asked to join average white band as a drummer. <laughs> Is that right? Yes. And he and, and before they went out, and he he, ne- he wound up never doing a gig with them. Excuse me, but he was officially he was he was going to be the drummer of that band, and I forget what the reason was, but something happened, and and it, it just never came through. But technically, he was asked to do the gig. <laughs> I did the average white band gig. The keyboard player in in Hall and Oates, Elliot Lewis, he was the lead singer of of average white band for like twelve years, oh, wow. and our bass player. Uh, um, Clyde Jones, he took over Elliot's spot as the lead singer. Wow. And he was there for like 14 years. So Hall & Oates are, are uh, AWB uh, retreads. 
Pretty much. <laughs> yeah. And and Daryl, Daryl Hall and Alan Gorey, the leader of Average White Band, those guys are good friends and songwriting partners. They've written, you know, they've written a lot of songs together as well. So there's a lot of uh, both camps are very, very intertwined. Um, and also, you know, T-Bone, the, the, the bass player. Yeah. Um, I think the main reason I'm there uh, is when I was with Average White Band, we opened up for, for Hall & Oates many years ago, um, 18 years ago or something. And T, I remember T-Bone was sitting behind me the whole night. And when the show was over, he came over to me and he was so complimentary. And we hung out later that night and um, a bunch of years went by. And I've always known about T-Bone being a New Yorker, and but we were in different groups. I was still part of like more of the jazz scene, and T-Bone was producing big records and playing with all kinds of people and um, Saturday Night Live and so on. But eventually, Daryl had already been doing his television show, and uh, Sean Pelton was the drummer, yep. and he couldn't make a taping. And T-Bone called me up one day. And he goes, hey, man, he's like, you want to, uh, he goes, we do this little show, this internet show, and, you know, you just got to come in, learn, learn like seven tunes, and would you be into doing that? And I'm like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so I wound up, I wound up coming in just subbing once on the television show. That's it. Yeah. And from doing that one thing where I subbed, Daryl dug it, and I became the sub for just the television show. And that's it. That's where it ended. Yeah. And then the drummer for Hall and Oates had to have a back surgery and he wound up reaching out to me and he said, Hey man, I got to have the surgery. I'm going to miss a run. Are you available? And I'm, I haven't asked them yet, but are you available? Um, and I said, yeah. <laughs> and then he went after a show, he went to John and Daryl and he's like, look, I need to get the surgery and um, I, I need to get a sub. And he's like, before he even said anything, Daryl said, oh, call that guy. What's his name? And he didn't <laughs> know who I was, the client or something. And he's like, yeah, you, you want to know what? I already called. I already asked him. He's available. And they were like, great. That's it. So I, I, then I, became, so I was the sub for both gigs. Yeah. And then at a certain point, they just, they just gave both gigs to me. Cool. So that was the that was kind of the chain of events that that led to uh, me being there. It's so it's important, and it's a lesson that we're hearing a lot from from you. Is is basically no matter what the gig and where you're walking into, if it's a sub or if it's you know you're not knowing if there's five people in the audience who could be there, it's important to bring it every single time you do a gig. Oh yeah. And oh yeah. And if you phone it in, even once, it could be that one time that changes your cor your course of history for for the rest of your career, and you wouldn't yeah. even realize it. That's the half the time, which is a real drag. Is and I think we've all been through it. We've been maybe through a gig with somebody, and when you were done, you're like, oh man, I, you know, maybe you had someone in the audience who you wanted to see the bass player or someone, and they just dropped the ball that night, and. It happens. It happens a lot. I've seen it happen a, a bunch of times. And, mm -hmm. and it's so important just to always, um, and I think the older I get, the more I realize that, just always do the best of your ability every single time you do whatever you're going to do. Because it, it always matters. Yep, yep. definitely. Especially matters definitely. in times like this when we're stuck in, 
in COVID and, and, you know, there's not a lot of work around. So, you know, who's going to get the work? It's going to be the guy, you know, the really great guys and the guys who've had, you know, always been there in the past and always done a good job. Um, mm-hmm. those, those are the guys you're going to call. So, so when this is all over and everybody's allowed to go back into the, into performing, <clears throat> um, Everybody should know that Brian. Are you still? Are you still? Were you still playing at the Wa on Funk yeah. Night? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Still now doing the, that. The Wa is a club in the East Village, right? West Village. Or West Village. Sorry, and and it was originally called the What, and the and the T fell off. Is that is that the way that story goes? You know, I don't even know. <laughs> yeah, well, was, and that's the club where Jimi Hendrix played, right? Yes. Yeah. Bob yeah. Dylan too. Yeah. Yeah. It was called the What with a T and when the T fell off, it just became the walk. Okay. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and it's easier to say when you're drunk, you know, the what? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, that's nice. a, and that's a great place to go. If you ever, if you ever get a chance to go when Brian's playing, it's a great, it's a small club. Uh, and the, and the band that you play with, the people that you play with are outstanding. Just amazing. Awesome. Yeah, they're great. They're great. Some great players and singers down there. Absolutely. So obviously, you you've played with a ton of people on uh, live from Daryl's house. Um, talk about that challenge and 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 how's the how's the structure uh, of that show? Is it all done in one day, or you know, do we rehearse the day before, or how how's the structure of recording that show? We we get. The music we we get our the six or seven tunes we're going to do usually a week before. Yeah, um, they're almost never the versions that we play. They're usually just the original recordings, yeah. which you know uh, the the forms change over the years, and there's live versions. But we just get the original version usually, and we do our own homework independently. We show up at that at the space at ten thirty in the morning um, by. By let's say noon, we have sound check. We everybody can hear each other, and we at we usually take a break, and then at one o'clock the artist shows up. We meet the artist, and everything every musically the playing is usually done by four o'clock. Wow. The whole thing, and there is no rehearsal. But what does happen is the the artists and, and RMD, Shane, they talk about, and Daryl, they talk about what the form is going to be, how they like to do it that's different, or basically what Daryl does is he tries to get them to agree that we want to do a version that's unique to us here today right now. Not what you used to do, not necessarily what you do now when you play in front of audiences. Let's do something that makes it us and part of the charm of the show is that it feels like you're you're sitting in on a rehearsal that ends up with a final performance. There's always a little totally. conversation, and that's that's the that's what makes the show what it yeah. is. It, it and it's real. I mean, like it's real because where I'm horrified half the time because <laughs> where where you know we'll we talk we'll talk through a form, and then when we go we go to play. There's no stopping. Um, once you start. Play to the end, unless there's an absolute train wreck, right? Yeah. And then when you get to the end, now's the time as the artist, as the guest, now's your opportunity to say, what do you like? What, what, what don't you like? And how are we going to end this tune? 
And then 85% of the time, the next time we play it, that's what you hear. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and things change, you know, sometimes, sometimes somebody says, yeah, we're going to do a double, we're going to do a intro verse chorus, and then we're going to do a double verse and then a chorus. And then magically, instead of doing two verses, we do one. And then we have to adapt in that moment, right? Yeah. And those things that happen, it's like, hey, so what? Too bad. Keep your ears open. Yeah. And, and then when we get to an end of a tune, I can think, I mean, literally every single song of every performance, we get to the end and I can say to myself, I got about seven things I want to change. <laughs> and then usually Daryl goes like this. Next. Yeah, that felt good. Next. <laughs> and then you just got to live with it. Yeah. And I can't, and you can't edit, like, it's live drums in a room with, with PA speakers, like, there's zero isolation. Yeah, you can't go um, in and, and dub in. Yeah. You, yeah. yeah although they, although they, can, they, do, they do a post-mix, post, uh, post uh, mix. do they not? Yeah, they can right. mess, they can mess yeah. with, with certain stuff, but, like, the live drums, they can't mess with that. Yeah. Because I'm in everybody's vocal mic. It's, you know. Yeah, you, but, move, you know, move anything around or change something, it's you're going to hear flamming and everything changing yeah. everywhere. So, yeah. Yeah. The engineer, the guy who does that, is it's it's remarkable what he comes through with because, like I said, it's like it's not like it's not like Daryl's wearing in-ears yeah, no and he's singing, in, yeah. he's singing into a mic. This is like, it's like a bar band. We're in a room with a PA system. Yeah. <laughs> and And... And monitors that are just smashing loud. <laughs> That's the thing a lot of people don't know. Daryl is super old school with, he wants air to be moved. Yeah. He doesn't, he doesn't even like, I shouldn't say he doesn't like, he can't stand the thought of, of using in-ears. Yeah. So no, 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 no. He won't do it. He will not do it. And so it's, it's, I mean, again, there's something about the vibe of, air moving on a stage yeah. but at the same time it makes life a little harder on sound men yeah. you know what i'm saying so sure. but he likes he likes to hear stuff Woo. he likes it loud. <laughs> you have to come you gotta you gotta eat your weeds <laughs> <laughs> well that brings excitement too right especially when you take yeah. a show like that you want it you know you just want to have that excitement yep, yep. so do you have any favorites of the artists um, or do you want to broadcast that? <laughs> no, no. I mean, I, 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 there's a, there's a handful that, that, I mean, the first person, a lot of times for me that comes into mind and I, and I, and I, I can't say that I, I grew up a huge fan. I mean, I've always admired him, but there was something about, uh, um, oh God, now I'm not going to remember his name. It's so embarrassing. <laughs> uh, uh, the Eagles guitar player, Joe Walsh, Joe Walsh, man. Yeah. Joe Walsh came in there to me. I know. I saw that show, man. That, 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 that dude is super bad. I mean, I, I was, a, I was a fan, but like now I became a, like, wow. Rocky Mountain. Yeah. Rocky Mountain. Like, he came, you know what it is? He came in and like, you know what I noticed? I noticed guys like him, guys like, um, uh, um, the ZZ top guy, guy, um, um, oh my God. Yeah. It's okay. We all know who you mean. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> We're all that Billy age. Gibbons. Billy Gibbons. Right. You know, these guys come in and it's like nothing to prove. Yeah. It's no. just like, yeah, cool. Let's just play some music. And it's, it's, and it, and they make, they change the room with that. 
And, and Daryl's the same way. Sammy Hagar was that way too. Like yeah. certain, certain, certain people come on and they, they, it works with the kind of, with the kind of musician um, that Daryl is, it works. And they, they're, they're not, they're not afraid and they're not intimidated. And they're also, they, they come from an era where you had to just, just deliver. Yeah. And, the, and there wasn't all these scenarios where everything was to be made so perfect, you know, right. and, and the, the overall feel and vibe of something supersedes perfection, you know? So, um, yeah, Joe Walsh comes to mind. This, I, I, for me, I, I, I liked, I liked, I liked, I think we had some special moments with CeeLo Green. Yeah. Um, and I, and this girl, Grace Potter was, I thought great. And this other girl, Grace, uh, from Australia, she called herself Grace. I mean, I, I mean, she calls herself. She, her name is Grace. I forget her last name, but she was a killer too. I mean, there's a lot of everybody. You know what it is? I kind of liked. I like everybody because everybody's a little different, and that's what another reason why being on that show is. We're so lucky because you know, if you how do you make a musician complain? You give him a gig, right? You get a gig, even if it's a good one. You find reasons. You find little things that you like that you. Oh, I wish it's a great gig, but I wish. But like with this thing. We're constantly playing different music with different people. Um, everything about it is is so great, and we we benefit because as as sidemen, um, you know, all of our interactions with these people can come back to help us. You know, years from now, yeah. who knows? Who knows if John and Daryl what they're going to be doing two years from now or five years from now. But I bet you, I bet you that girl, Grace will still be performing. I bet you Gavin DeGraw is going to still be performing. And I'll you know bet you they, so, I bet you they all got your number. Right. So that's, that's, <laughs> that's the advantage of being a part of something like this. You know, yeah. I know for me, from when we were, I was a kid, I used to look at the David Letterman band with Steve Jordan and, and, and I used to be, say to myself, my brother too, would be like, wow, that would be like, the greatest thing ever, like to be, to play in a band on TV with other artists. That's insane. It's like unbelievable. And like, here you go. And like, now it's not the Letterman band, but it's, and it is slightly different, obviously, but it's like, it's that rare. I mean, how many shows are like this? Yeah. So I can't think of any actually. So it's, it's, or very few if there are. So it's, yeah. Yeah, you could be like in a house band for a TV show or something, and but you really don't get to spend any time with the artists, or you know, it's a quick run yep. through and bam, and they they're not paying attention really to who's there too much. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, something like this where you really sit down and you get to spend the day with somebody, and and it's just you guys, and and it, and really all you guys are just much as part of it than than anyone else. It's not, you know, it's not here's the star and and everyone else is kind of shoved in the corner. Yeah. It's a bit one big happy family. Yeah. The only thing I got to say is my, my, I get in trouble occasionally for my wife because whenever there's the dinner scenario, I'm usually not talking and I'm shoving food down my face. <laughs> <laughs> like, like I haven't eaten in a week. <laughs> you were working. <laughs> but that food is good. Food is wasn't always it, good. Yeah. Wasn't it, you, wasn't it you that was telling me that there is a restaurant in Brooklyn where there was no menu? Yes. Yes. Yeah, you gotta, like you gotta hear this, Darren. Yeah, so, because the, tell him the story. Go ahead. That's so it. Much, so what do you want? What do you want? 
<laughs> exactly. So my, my, I have a friend who, who, who kept telling me, he's like, man, you got to go to this restaurant in Brooklyn. I was living in Brooklyn. He's like, you got to go to this restaurant, two toms. Go in there, man, and they make just amazing food. So, you know, I took my wife there one night, and, and my, of course now my wife says, oh, well, let's dress up. <laughs> like, we're dressed up really nice. We go into this. We walk in front of it. We're like, could this possibly be it? It was like a, like a storefront where there'd be like a deli and a candy store. And it was like just a converted storefront with like dirty wood paneling on the, on the walls, right? Yeah. But whatever, we walk in, and there's like a softball team like an entire softball team sitting at a long table, right? And so I sit down with her and the waiter comes over to me and he goes, he goes, all right, so uh, what do you want? And I go, excuse me? He's like, what do you want to eat? And I go, oh, can, can we see a menu? No, we don't got no menu, Sam, man. Just tell me, what do you want to eat? <laughs> so I, I was like <laughs> completely taken back, like, oh my God. So, so I look at him again and he can tell I'm a little uncomfortable and he looks at me and goes, Hey guy, are you hungry? <laughs> I go, yeah. He goes, we got meat, we got fish, we got chicken. What do you want to eat? <laughs> so I still didn't answer him. And he goes, listen, you tell me what you want to eat. And then I'll tell you if I can make it. That's the way it works. <laughs> what do you want to eat? <laughs> really super aggressive. So I was like, um... All right, I go, okay, can I have, um, I, I remember what I ordered. I wanted, ve I go, can I have fried veal cutlets with a side of spaghetti with, with uh, like a spicy fra diavolo sauce? He goes, perfect. You should have done that. <laughs> what do you want, hon? And he looks at my wife. <laughs> That's fabulous. Damn. The best restaurant in the world. What do you want? <laughs> Damn. But, but I got to give it to him. It was good. And... <laughs> He he waited for he was the waiter, and the, there was one dude in the kitchen. That's it. Wow, <laughs> nobody else. Two guys and the whole softball team. <laughs> yeah, the softball. Team. <laughs> I got to go to that place. That's great. Oh, for sure. Oh, for sure. So, yeah. how, how did you two uh, get together for uh, Rob's gig? How did that all come together? Um, I was, uh, I, I was coming into New York, uh, to work with a couple of guys that I had worked with on some other shows, um, bass player, uh, Greg Feline and, and guitar player, Alex Domshot. And, um, I was staying with a friend, uh, who, uh, had another friend who worked for ASCAP. And, uh, so I was going to woodshed some classic rock songs for this show, for World Rock Symphony to see whether or not it would work. We didn't even know if any of these songs would, would, would work. And I said, I need a drummer. And she said, I know a guy. And this is, this is the guy. And uh, so we moved into Ultrasound, right? I think it was Ultrasound. Yep. Mm -hmm. And so we would, and I was also in town casting another show. So I would, I would uh, work casting my other show during the day and then we would come to ultrasound in the evening and play for four or five hours, which probably drove your wife crazy at that time too. So we did that for, for an entire week. And Danny Zolly, another friend, uh, was, was the temp singer. And at the end it was like, well, are you going to give Brian the cake? <laughs> and I, and I said, well, I, I thought he knew that he had it all along and, but nobody knew. So we, uh, <laughs> 
So we went out to Brooklyn and uh, the general manager I was working with at the time found a, the gut the worst studio I've ever been in in my life. <laughs> it, it, it was, it was, it was really bad. And, uh, I had to play a Fender Rhodes that had like half the keys weren't working and the rest of them had gum in them. And, and I don't even know what kind of kit you were playing on, but it was trash. It was garbage. Everything was just God awful. So we, we, uh, recorded for about 14 hours straight. <laughs> and then, uh, and then Brian came out to Canada and played, uh, the first uh, two years of World yeah. Rock, right? Yeah, first two yeah. years. And uh, <clears throat> I'll tell you, and the, and the reason I brought up the traditional, traditional uh, uh, grip is that in spite of the fact that, you know, there was, was all these big bombastic songs in, in that show, um, I could hear every nuance and, and there's, there was no problem hearing two and four. I mean, they and, and what Brian's amazing at, how often here's how often do you change a snare head? Uh, not very often. Not very often. <laughs> he plays the uh, I was going to say a bad word out of a, out of a song, and there's no dimple in the uh, in the in the snare head. It's it, the, the, what the, your technique is amazing, man. Just truly amazing. Oh, thank you, man. And so, uh, so then, uh, then Brian had to come to me and said, "My, my wife's going to have a baby. <laughs> we're, we're, we're going to have a baby. I don't know if I could do this anymore, Rob." Also, and and video technology was just beginning at that point, so we were able to stay in touch. And then Brian came to me and he said, uh, "I'm not going to be able to do the gig anymore, man. Uh, that was that was when you got the the Hall of Notes Hall of Notes job." And we've everybody's been thrilled and happy for uh, for Brian ever since, and we continue to think of him as a, as a as a member of our of our shows and our band, and and he's been a great friend. Awesome. Uh, likewise, man. My my experience there was awesome. That that play, sitting sitting in front of that orchestra and 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 that choir. What? <laughs> Killers. Killers. Um, and playing all that great music and that, yeah, that was a, that was a hell of a band, man. And, um, yeah, thanks. you know, it's, I know what I remember was, was the conductor's name Glenn? Yes. Glenn. Glenn Morley. Morley. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I, I, uh, you know, I've, I've, it's not often as a drum set player that you get to, that you play with. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a conductor. Right. Um, and I always, I always thought of him like around, I don't know how, if it was around the same time or maybe after, no, it was actually around the same time. I had been playing with lots of orchestras, ironically with, with uh, this singer, Patty Austin. Right. That's and, right. Yeah. yeah. And Patty, Patty, I, I, I was like only a sub for Patty's like R and B stuff, the, the Quincy stuff, but she did the great American songbook, like all these Ella Fitzgerald uh, versions of, of, of Amer great American songbook tunes. And it was like, she did a bunch of jazz records. So she would take a trio out and they would plop us in the middle of whatever city we were in their major orchestra. Right. And sometimes you come across conductors that are like, Hey, I'm the conductor baby. <laughs> right. Yeah. But it's like, I'm a drum set player. Not that we have, we have to feud here, but like, 
we're playing we're playing a we're playing a standard we're playing a jazz tune and I, I gotta I, I'm not I'm not gonna ignore you but I, I'm gonna my attention is on Patty Austin that lady up there I gotta be I gotta be keeping my eye and my ear on that yeah. and the conductors that would make that scenario easy to me I mean it just makes sense and I wish they all had this mentality but Glenn was one of these guys where Glenn's attitude to me, cause I, I remember when we did the world rock symphony, I would play and the conductor was behind me. Yes. He was, yeah, he's downstage and we had the so mirror. I had a mirror. I had a mirror in front of me wow. so I could see him. Yeah. Right. Which is really unorthodox, but he basically put my mind at ease and he's like, look, you're the drum. You're the drummer. You're the heartbeat of this whole stage he's like i'm 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 conducting this whole thing but at the end of the day we're following you they, they'll follow me you don't worry about me you do your thing and i'm gonna i'm gonna get everybody keep everybody together yeah the way world, do his job the way world rock came together was that <clears throat> excuse me um glenn's glenn's job was not to keep time right Glenn's job was to was to bring out the the right sounds out of the orchestra and the right sounds out of the corral, and the band, which was all downstage of of the orchestra, played in a line and we could see each other. We were just straight across, uh, and so our job was to be the band, and and uh, and every department had their had brought out you know the best performance of of the group that they were in charge of. It was yep. great. Yep. And it, that, that, see that, that's, that works. And that makes sense to me. And I, it wasn't always that way. We'd go out with Patty. I mean, more often than not, the conductor would acquiesce to me. Like the, the best conductors were the guys that would come. I remember in, 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 uh, in Detroit, I think it was Detroit. And the conductor who was th th that particular conductor, he came into our dressing room and goes, okay, who's the drummer here? And I go, me. He goes, okay, here's the deal. He's like, once this tune starts, he's like, once the tune starts, you just do your thing. You don't even worry about me. You don't even worry about me. You're, you're, you do your thing as if you're playing with this band. And don't think that you have to have eyes on me and follow me in any way. That's and cool. then I'm going to, you do your job and I'm going to kind of work it around you. And that puts me at ease because I don't, I, I'm never going to disrespect someone, even if I disagree with their the way they want to do things if the conductor is like i don't want you to count the tune off i'm going to give a half a preppy and we're going to start and if you're not used to that too bad this is my orchestra right so like it's it's a little nerve-wracking but i'm gonna i'm not and gonna yet, fight and yet we did all of world rock with like one or two clicks right yeah <laughs> <laughs> the, the whole thing two clicks and we're going <laughs> yeah yeah we had to move I yeah, think there was a lot of a lot of tunes. That's right. I think I think when we did "Who Are You," you got to you got to hit four sloppy hi hats, and that was the only time you ever got the four. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Too many jokes yeah. there. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> but there was a situation where where you know when everybody around you can really play, it makes it easy to 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 play. Obviously, um, and and. But in a situation like that, as a drummer, you start taking too many liberties. The whole, the whole thing could, could it just, you're not, it's not going to be, 
it's going to lose that thickness. And you, you need the responsibility as the drummer when you have like, how many people are on that stage? Like 60 people or something? As 50, yeah. 50 people? Yeah. I mean, you need, to, you, need to, you need to be right down the middle and like make sure that this stuff is bumping and people can, you know. And, and I mean, you know what it is? I guess at the end of the day, if you, if you simply just play the song that you happen to be playing, you just let the song dictate what's yeah. supposed to happen. Everything is taken care of. It's not a question of playing more fills or less fills. And we it's play that whole show. Everything. We play that whole show without a click. And so all of the tempos would come out of your head or my head or whoever was leading the song off. And there's something magical about playing without a click. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah. They so let the song breathe a little bit. Yeah. Well, especially yeah. when you got that we many players too. Let's try to. Yeah. yeah. And we don't use we don't use a click with Hall and Oates. No. Zero. Zero. Good. Like nothing's pre-recorded. Not no clicks. Perfect. Super loose, and no rehearsals in that band either. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, we we played we played on we played on the Voice, um, the grand finale, like the night they announced the the, the winner, right? And we hadn't seen each other in like three and a half, four months. <laughs> and like, we get the call. We're going to go to fly to LA and we're going to play on the voice. Go. What are we playing? We don't, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no rehearsal, nothing. And, and like, you know, uh, I don't know, a couple of million people watch that. <laughs> yeah. Maybe a couple more. We found out what we were playing like that day. Like Daryl's, uh, Daryl's, Daryl, like, he, I think he likes, he likes the, uh, you know what it is? He has confidence in us. Yeah. So, um, oh, sorry. Yeah. He has confidence in us. So he, he, uh, he's okay with just, you know, he likes that bit of excitement, the little edginess and, and what looseness brings to a, to a performance. So he's very, he's, he's very gutsy, man. <laughs> That's a good. lot of artists, a lot of artists are, you know, they talk a big game, but they'd be, you know, rehearsing for a week to, to, to do one television show, you know, yeah. like, well, you got you know, he has of, no interest. A lot of confidence in yourself too, just to be able to do that. I mean, he's obviously really comfortable in yeah. his position as a singer and guitar player and being able to just go and do that. Um, and then rely with everyone around you to bring it as well. Uh, that's a good yeah. place to be. <laughs> nice yeah. place to be yeah especially when you're doing yeah. any concert or anything you just go up and you just play just have fun yeah i yeah. I, was, I was seeing um i won't name the artist but um popular guitar singer guy um tour and uh i've seen him a few times and the last time i seen him uh the new album had a, a bunch of loopy drum stuff happening all through it so they were locked in with um, a click and you know the whole show was uh, emptied and lighting and everything the whole deal was just completely locked in and what a you could tell everyone on stage was uncomfortable like it just you could just feel it like I, you know, I've seen these guys a bunch of times and they just you know just let it rail whenever they want and solos longer if they want and every time it would be like everything was completely locked and you could just feel it. You could feel the uncomfortableness in the whole group. 
and it was early on in the tour. Maybe it probably got better, but um, it's tough when you've you got to. I mean, it works for some people and, and other other mm -hmm. bands. I think it just needs to just let it let it go. Yep, I'll tell you this guy here. When doing World Rack, there were so many different tempos from song to song to song. I thought he was a solid player. <laughs> yeah, if you were, no, no, if you if you were to if you were to see the show, you would have sworn that that we were running to a click. Yeah, because the songs sat exactly where they were supposed to sit the entire time. We might have played one or two a little faster than the originals, but just the energy on stage pushed it. You know, a, a couple of beats uh, faster. But Brian it was able to. Um, you know, go from like completely different tempos from song to song, and and to his credit, man, that's uh, that that's that's a big skill that not many people can uh, can actually do. Awesome. So, let's look ahead. Would you do you look? I mean, obviously now with with COVID going, it's hard to know what's ahead five years from now or ten years. But are you yeah. one of these guys that kind of look further in your career and have a place you want to be at a certain time, or you just just have fun and just see what happens. No, nah, I mean, the only thing I'm, no, nah, I'm just trying to, I'm just, I'm just, I'm always trying to get better first. Um, and I'm super uh, happy and, and I'm, I acknowledge the gig that I have is really great, yeah. but I operate in a way where I never know when it's going to end. So I'm, I keep it, I keep things kind of grinding. So, you know, assuming if this COVID thing never happened, I would still be doing my Cafe Wa gig on Tuesday nights. I would still be doing my gigs on weekends. I'm going to do, I'm just going to work as if I don't have this gig. I've always approached it that way because I know too many people um, now that have had some good gigs themselves. And as soon as they get in that space, um, they stop. They stop everything else. Yeah. Yeah. And then what happens is you go on the road, you're out of sight, out of mind. Sometimes people, I mean, in some scenarios, it's great when you're playing with name people because certain people are now going to call you that didn't know who you were before. So that's a positive. People call you and they don't play games with money. They assume that you expect a certain amount of money. So they don't, they don't come at you like you need this so badly and I'm going to lowball you to death. Yeah. Um, so in those regards, doing a nice kind of art, national artist gig, those are the p positives. But the negative is if you're not around enough for the people that are around town, you're, you're just going to stop calling you because they're going to assume you're working. You know what I mean? Yeah. So if you don't get out there and show your face and play with people, and and do little nothing gigs financial you know like with very little financial reward that's fine you got to just be out there playing all the time because like i said then the big gig goes away and like are you gonna you're starting all over again yeah. it's like that's is way too much competition out there to be starting anything over again so you have to i i've always tried to operate like you know i got fired like yeah. any day I could just get fired. Now, I don't think I'm going to get fired. I will say this, the day that I'm not in that band, I'm telling you right now, I will have been fired because I ain't quitting. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but, but assuming that I'm not going to get fired, uh, yeah, I mean, and as far as the future, you know, I'm going to, 
I'm, I just feel like I'm always going to be, I always, I have my hands on a lot of different kinds of music. Always. I always have, I always will. And, and as I get older, you know, at a certain point, I'm going to become less employable. I understand that. Um, and as I start playing less, I'm going to be teaching more. That's my ultimate. And, they're good, and there's the, there's the education. Yeah. Mom, yeah, mom well, and now, dad will be proud. Yeah. Now I don't know if I'm going to teach in a public school, <laughs> but I will, I will, I will definitely be teaching. And ironically, it's how a lot of people I know started too. Like you're young and you're practicing a lot and you're going to school and you're starting to socialize and you're playing in and around New York city. Like a lot of people I know. And at that point, a lot of guys I knew had private students. And then, and I know I did, I've been teaching private drum lessons my whole life from when I was in high school. So at a certain point I was doing 30, 35 kids a week just in my apartment or driving to kids' houses. And I was like a mailman and, (laughs) and I was able to make a lot of money and for very little time. And, but then as I started becoming more busy as a player, the teaching went away. But now I feel like later on, um, I think ultimately that's what's probably going to happen. I, you know, I'm hoping that, not that I don't want to teach, but I'd rather play. Yeah. So who knows, maybe when I'm, when I'm 55, 60 years old, I'll still be good enough and people will want to have me around and I'll, and I'll be still performing. But if not, that's something I could always do and that's teach. So Excellent. So let's wrap up on a uh, couple questions here. And one I always like to ask uh, I, obviously, you've played all over the uh, the country and all over the place. Um, do you have any venues left, any places out there that you haven't played at that you've always wanted to? It might be on your bucket list. Um, wow. Uh, no, no, no venue that I, that, that I can think of. Cause to me grow, you know, I'm a New Yorker. So growing up, it was like the blue note and MSG and, and, and I've been fortunate enough to do both a number of times. Um, favorite, favorite venues, favorite venues, Uh, MSG. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but having said that, having said that, I like playing in clubs, man. Yeah. I like clubs. I like, I like, I like to know that I like a place small enough that if I put a little into something, it's going to affect everybody. And a sound man can't control that. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Because when you play, you play in an arena, you know, I can do this all I want. And it's not going to amount to a hill bean. <laughs> yeah. If that dude wants, doesn't want me to be heard or, you know, it's as easy as a flick of a finger. So, um, I, I like the, I like the, you know, I like the, I like a beacon theater size place. I like theaters, yeah, yeah. you know, or, or even a little smaller than that, but there's still something about a club, you know, I don't know, growing up and always being in the city. Um, there's something about seeing people playing in a club. That's so cool for, to me. What's the ceiling at the Waz? I think at its highest point, it's like eight feet. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's great. Yeah, so yeah, I mean, there's probably, you know, in terms of touring, I mean, there's some countries that I'd like to check out, but you know, I can't really think of any venues at this point that 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 come to mind. That's good. That's a good place to be. Yeah, <laughs> and. Uh, 
so maybe for the drummers, drum wise out there, I know you're a DW and Dorsey and, and that put aside, is there anything you see in the drum world, uh, new drums or anything out there that you, you're excited about or you've seen in that over the past little while that you say, oh, I got to get something like that? Like I mean, gear wise, you're gear talking. Wise, yeah. Um, man, I tell you what, that snare drum that I was telling you about, this DW, it's called a super solid. This thing is the greatest drum ever. <laughs> and it's, 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 there's no, there's no, there's no, <laughs> plot, there's no glue. There's no plies of oh, wood. Yeah. Right? It's a solid piece of wood that's just bent into a circle. And man, I don't know what to say. I can't, I can't understand why it's not. I mean, it's, I'm sure it's popular, but I, I'm, I'm not sure why. Everybody that plays those drums are not are not using it. You know what I'm saying? Um, it's an awesome drum. I did it. I played on Daryl Hall's uh, a solo record um, that's not out. But we went to we, we flew to L.A. to do it, and I called the DW rep to let him know I was going to be in the studio, and I wasn't sure what kind of drums they were. And as an artist, you know, you can get the, the rental situation is made easier when you're an artist, yeah. and. Um, John Good, the guy who basically runs DW, he sent his personal drum set to the studio. Wow. Um, and he's along with like eight snare drums, like the most high-end stuff they have. And this super solid was one of them. And I, and, you know, I was embarrassed because I, I, I didn't even know what it was. I'm endorsing the company and I don't even know what this drum is, right? And we set it up. It was like the sixth drum we set up. We were testing snare drums. And I put that thing on a stand. I hit it. And the, the dude behind the window was like, hey, that's it. That's the one. <laughs> don't hit it. Don't even look at it anymore. Just leave it. Just stop. <laughs> and we used, we used that drum on every song on the record. Wow. I mean, with, with like, with like super, super low tuning, super high tuning down the middle tuning, it just, it does it all. So yeah. That's, That's great. great. Yeah. And when you're in the studio, uh, tuning your kit, obviously tuning the snare drum, how often do you repitch your toms? Do you look at pitching your toms to the key of the songs at all? Do you ever get into that or is it? I've never, I've never done that. Yeah. I've never done that. Um, and in terms of tuning, I'm a kind of guy that likes, I like, I usually, I like drums that are, I like when a drum that the fundamental pitch of the drum is high and I tune the head on the loose side. I like the way that sounds. Um, seems like a lot of modern drummers now play with, with heads that are kind of tight. Um, it's very easy to play on drums like that cause you get rebound. Yeah. Um, but and you throw you throw a stick into a head that's kind of loose it's it's you're not getting anything back so you, you kind of have to work and it changes your vocabulary it, it 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 makes actually makes you not go for stuff that's too you know noty you know what i'm saying um having said that um one challenge i've always had that i know like you know i know the country guys are great at this those those fat snare drums right yeah. with this the drum and and the head is loose and for me, being being this guy, yeah. <laughs> and really counting on rebound, you get nothing back on a snare drum like that. Yeah. And also coming from where I come from, and being such a Steve Jordan, Charlie Drayton kind of fan, those guys oftentimes 
have their snare drums cranked, you know? Like listening to Steve Jordan on like on a David Sanborn record and that thing's like um you know it's 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 been a learning experience for me but as being a studio owner myself now i realize it's like sonically obviously that's you don't want that in every kind of music obviously um but i would try to i am i'm constantly trying to not detune to the point where i'm losing all my rebound but at a certain point it's like it's just not sounding right so for me that's always been a huge challenge for me is to get that drum detuned enough to where it sounds like it's supposed to. Yeah. And then playing it is difficult for me. Yeah. Yeah. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. Cool. Well, this has been uh, uh, an awesome conversation. Really, really enjoyed cool, it. Certainly made up for my last one. <laughs> 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 and um, uh, yeah, it's, can't wait to uh hopefully someday uh meet up and see you play somewhere and uh where are you i'm actually real close to rob i'm like like 30 50 maybe not even that maybe 20 minutes away uh from where rob lives just outside of kitchener so uh we're very close to one still on long island yes excellent yep your life right you're a lifer i think so we'll see man it's it's this is not an easy place to retire though it's crazy here Cost of living is insane. Te- property taxes are like, ah, eh. uh, yes. New Everybody York. leaves here. Yeah. Everybody leaves here when they get they get older. They move <clears> on. <throat> it's, it's really tough. Go down. Come up to Canada. Come up. Come on up to Canada. We'll 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 take it. Can I have a gig? <laughs> if I ever get one, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if the gigs come back, sure. <laughs> if they come back, yeah. No, what, what we need to what we need to figure out is a way to do uh, uh, remote sessions together. There you go. Yeah, man. Yeah, for got, sure. Let's do some, it. Uh, I'll hold you. I'm going to hold you to that. Yeah. Good. Okay. Cool. Well, thanks uh, again. I'm going to wrap this up and just hang on a second. We'll say our proper goodbyes. But uh, thanks again, and I really appreciate you doing this podcast. It's been uh, really great. I'm sure everyone's going to really enjoy it. Cool. Thanks for having me, man. No problem. <laughs>